Our scripture reading for today's sermon comes from the book of 2 Timothy. We'll be reading verses 10 through 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles or your mobile app, whatever you're using, and the passage will be shown on the screen as well. This morning we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. I'll read the passage for us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let me pray for us once more. Oh, Father, we come now to your word. We're thankful for this opportunity to look into this text. And as we spend this time together, we ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds so that we can understand uh, what this passage says. Not just understand, but Lord, by your grace, apply it in a way that will bring greater joy to us and more glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you've heard, but the Winter Olympic Games are happening right now based in Beijing, China. I actually haven't been watching nearly as much this time around. Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you have been watching it very closely. But whenever I think of the Winter Olympics, my mind almost always goes back to one of the greatest moments of Olympic history, and that is the miracle on ice. Now, if you've seen the popular Disney movie called Miracle, then you're familiar with the 1980 U.S. hockey team. They were the classic underdog story. The team was comprised mainly of talented but vastly inexperienced college athletes. Their most formidable opponent was the Soviets, who had won the gold medal in the previous four Olympic Games, 1976, 1972, 1968, and 1964. The Soviets were by far the most dominant team in the world in that time. And as an example of this, they played an exhibition game a few months before the 1980 Winter Games, and they played against the NHL All-Stars, and they trounced them. Now, the U.S. Olympic team had their own opportunity to play the Soviets, also in an exhibition game in Madison Square Garden before the Olympics started. And if you've seen the Disney movie... You may remember the young American team looking completely overwhelmed from the moment they stepped onto the ice. 
Now perhaps some of us have felt overwhelmed these days. Maybe not overwhelmed by an opponent in a game, but overwhelmed in other ways. Overwhelmed by your circumstances at work. Maybe overwhelmed by your circumstances at home. Or maybe even overwhelmed by circumstances here at church. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if Timothy, the original recipient of this letter, also felt overwhelmed because he was a young pastor serving a small church in one of the largest cities of an empire that was largely hostile to the claims of this new religion called Christianity. As a person, Timothy was also known to be someone who was shy and maybe even easily intimidated. And if you've been feeling overwhelmed these days, well, you're most certainly not alone. I think many of us have been feeling it, not only in this church, but in our society as a whole. And this is something we openly admit in our vision statement for this year, which is recover and realign. Our brother Sung mentioned this in his congregational prayer earlier this morning. Our vision statement for 2022 says, we are deeply aware that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant emotional spiritual and relational toll on our church. In 2022, we are committed to R&R as a spiritual family. We will offer loving and grace-filled spaces for our people to begin the journey towards recovery. We also hope to realign with the trajectory of RCC's original vision as we implement our discipleship model into the life of the church. Over the past few weeks, I devoted a sermon to the recovery and realignment components of this vision statement, and in light of both of these priorities, I thought it'd be good to do a series on our church's original core values. If you're not familiar with them, our core values are the Word of God, worship, biblical governance, community, and the church's local and global mission. Now, last Sunday, we considered the first core value of the Word of God as we looked at Psalm 19. And I'd like to focus on the Word again today as we take a closer look at our passage from 2 Timothy. And I'll be focusing especially on the final two verses of our text since they deal most directly with this topic of Scripture. But I'm also going to spend more time than I usually take to set the stage because I want to make sure that we understand verses 16 and 17 within their proper context. Every text needs to be understood within its context. That's just the basic rule of interpreting any literary work. So what's the context of our passage? Well, the context is that Paul has just given Timothy a stern warning about the challenges he should expect as a Christian and as a pastor. Back in verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy and says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Boy, if this was true in Paul and Timothy's day, how much truer is it now? Paul gets more specific in the next few verses. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Paul's basic message to Timothy here is that he can expect a steep 
uphill climb with the wind blowing in his face as he lives as a Christian and pastors his small church in Ephesus. And if we are looking for the path of least resistance in following Jesus, Paul's, Timothy, Paul's warning to Timothy also applies to us. Following and serving Jesus, of course, is an invitation to a joy and a peace and a hope that nothing else in this world can offer. But it's also hard. Following Jesus can be hard. And there may even be times when we, we may feel completely overwhelmed. But Paul didn't write this letter just to warn his younger disciple and colleague in the faith. He also wanted to offer a word of encouragement. And he does this by first directing Timothy's attention to their personal friendship and how that has shaped him. If we look at the first two verses of the passage we read this morning, verses 10 and 11, it says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Now, it almost seems like Paul is bragging about himself here. But please notice carefully what he focuses on in these verses. First, he mentions his teaching, verse 10. But then he immediately follows that with his way of life, purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and even sufferings. You know, it's one thing to believe something and teach what you believe to others, but it's something else when you can back that all up with your actions, especially if your beliefs invite discomfort or even suffering into your life. And that's clearly what happened to the Apostle Paul, and Timothy had witnessed that up close and personal. You wouldn't expect the person who's bragging about himself to talk so much about his sufferings, but Paul does that to remind Timothy about something. As he warns Timothy about the hardship that's ahead, Paul isn't asking his younger brother in the faith to do something that he hasn't already experienced himself. Yes, Timothy, it's going to be hard. Yes, you might even have to suffer. But you've already seen me go through all of that. And just as God has sustained me, he will sustain you too. Bob Yarbrough, a New Testament scholar, notes that in reminding Timothy of his sufferings, Paul is commending to Timothy one of the hardest and yet noblest aspects of Christian belief. Jesus' followers do not add to what Jesus did for them on the cross, but they are called to live out the implications of the cross in their daily lives. That's so true. And that also reminds us that Paul's words to Timothy apply to every true believer. That's why he warns in verses 12 and 13, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Not every believer will experience the kind of persecution that inflicts physical pain or even costs us our lives, but... Every Christian should expect testing and trials that will cause hardship or maybe even pain. But we can also count on those trials to help us grow in our trust and in our obedience to the Lord. 
Now, Paul doesn't just want to encourage Timothy by reminding him of what he's learned through their personal friendship. He also wants to assure Timothy that he, in fact, has everything he needs to serve his Lord and lead his people. Timothy had everything he needed to carry out his duties as a young pastor. We see this in the next verses. Verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, just a few observations here. First, I want us to notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't offer Timothy any new paradigms or strategies for leadership. Paul doesn't introduce Timothy to the newest ministry fad that has captured everyone's attention. Paul simply encourages Timothy to continue in what he has already learned and become convinced of. Notice also the reasons for this advice. First, Timothy knows and he trusts the people who have taught him. You know those from whom you learned it. Now, who is Paul talking about here? Well, most likely, he's thinking of himself since he's Timothy's spiritual father and mentor. But he's almost certainly also thinking of Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, respectively. Paul mentioned both of these godly women back in chapter 1. They evidently had a great influence in Timothy's life, teaching him the scriptures, even from his infancy, according to verse 15 in our passage. And these scriptures are the other reason why Timothy should continue in what he has already learned and become convinced of. Yes, Timothy can certainly trust the people who taught him the scriptures, but even more importantly, he can trust the scriptures themselves. The scriptures, more than anything else, supply Timothy with everything he needs to live faithfully as a Christian and pastor his church especially since it's these scriptures that show the way for a sinner to be saved. Or as Paul puts it in the second half of verse 15, they're able to make a person wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus for your forgiveness and your salvation, you can thank God for the people who shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was your Sunday school director or your youth pastor. Perhaps it was a relative or a friend. Maybe it was a speaker at a retreat or a revival meeting you attended long ago. But the main reason you are a Christian today is because that person, whoever it was, shared the gospel that's contained and taught in the scriptures, in the Bible. John Stott, a pastor and theologian, puts it this way. He writes, the gospel we believe is the biblical gospel, the gospel of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, vouched for by both the prophets of God and the apostles of Christ. Let me put that a bit differently, maybe even more forcefully. If we don't have the scriptures, we don't have the gospel. If we didn't have the Bible, we would have no way of knowing how we could be saved through faith in Christ Jesus. No scriptures, no salvation. Plain and simple. 
And I believe this is the reason we made the Word of God not just a core value, but the first core value when we planted this church over 11 years ago. Because everything we believe about who God is, everything we believe about who we are, everything we believe, especially about how a person can be saved, depends on this core value of the Word of God. If you check our website, you'll see this description of God's Word on our core values page. It says, We believe the Bible is God's Word to humanity and therefore relevant for every person at every moment in history. This informs our commitment to make the Bible central at Restoration Community Church. Our sermons and small group Bible studies will consider the Bible's contemporary relevance by determining each text's original meaning within its context. Of course, we want to do everything we can to provide opportunities for us to experience genuine community as a church. Of course, we want to do everything we can to be on mission together wherever God has placed us. We also want to offer an experience of worship that's engaging, an experience of worship that can shape us into more devoted and faithful followers of Jesus as the weeks and months and years go by. And I'll be talking about those core values in later sermons, but I also want to say we don't want to do any of that at the cost of taking God's word for granted. We want to stay true to our commitment to make the Bible central at Restoration Community Church. Now, I know that was a lot of time to set the stage for verses 16 and 17, but again, I wanted to make sure that we understand those verses within their proper context. And so I'd like to devote the rest of our time this morning to addressing three key topics that verses 16 and 17 raise about the Scripture. And I just want to say, don't worry, my sermon won't be too much longer than usual. You guys are safe. First, I want to talk about the origin of Scripture. And then we'll address the usefulness of Scripture. And third and last, we'll briefly discuss the purpose of Scripture. The origin of Scripture, the usefulness of Scripture, and finally the purpose of Scripture. Let's begin with the origin of Scripture. In verse 16, we read, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now this statement at the beginning talks about the divine origin of scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. Now yes, there were several human authors who wrote the different books of the Old and New Testament at different periods of history and in different languages and with unique writing styles that often reflected things like their level of education and even their own individual literary quirks. But all of these human authors wrote as God directed their thoughts so that everything that they wrote ultimately came from Him. God breathed out His words through these human writers, as it were. In theological language, this belief in the divine authorship of Scripture is known as inspiration. Inspiration. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, offers a helpful explanation of inspiration. He says, the theory of inspiration is that though the documents of sacred Scripture were written by human authors, they were not merely recording their own opinions or recollections. 
They are performing their tasks as agents of revelation under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. Human authors were given the ability to write just what God wanted to be written. The authority of their words was not their own, but God's authority. Now, one other point I want to make is that when we consider this idea of inspiration, we're not just talking about the human authors. Yes, each of them was inspired by God as they put pen to paper, but this concept of inspiration also covers the Bible as a whole. All of the scriptures ultimately come from God. God is the ultimate origin of the entire collection of the 66 books that make up the Old and New Testament that we have today. Now what this means for us on a practical level is that we can assume that if the Bible ultimately has one author, then it also has a fundamental unity to it. There is a fundamental unity to the Bible. If God is the ultimate author of Scripture, what that means is that he's not going to say one thing in one part of the Bible and then contradict himself in another part. If we think we found a passage in one area of Scripture that seems to conflict with another, the issue is our interpretation or our misinterpretation, not the Bible. Since God is the ultimate origin of Scripture, He's not going to lie, He's not going to contradict Himself in different passages. There is a fundamental unity to the Bible. Second, I want to talk not only about the origin of Scripture, but also its usefulness, the usefulness of Scripture. If we look again at verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We see here four ways that the Scripture is useful for believers. First, it teaches us. The Bible offers everything we need to know about who God is and who we are and how we can be saved, and how we can live in a way that honors and pleases Him. He teaches us. Second, the Scripture rebukes us. It rebukes us. The Bible exposes our sin. It shines the light on our incorrect thinking and behavior. Now, that can be an uncomfortable experience, especially in a culture like ours that puts such a high premium on self-esteem, but... There are times where if you really love someone, you won't just tell them what they want to hear. You'll tell them what they need to hear. You'll tell them what they must hear. And that's what God often does to us through his holy word. But having said that, the Bible doesn't just knock us down. It also picks us back up and it dusts us off. Scripture doesn't just rebuke us. It also corrects us us. It doesn't just tell us that we're heading down the wrong path, it also points us to the right path. And finally, the scriptures train us in righteousness. Now many of us know any training that's worth our while doesn't just happen overnight, whether we're training for a sport or a musical instrument or a new language or pretty much any new skill Training takes time. It takes commitment. It takes patience. But the outcome almost always makes it worth it. 
Professor Bob Yarbrough offers another insightful comment here. He says, Scripture is a primary resource for producing the acts and habits that will reflect God's own character, His righteousness, in relationship with His people. One practical implication here is that if the Bible is useful in all these ways, if it can truly teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness, then we can assume that the Bible has a fundamental clarity to it. I'm sure many of us have had the experience of reading a text or maybe even several chapters in the Bible, and then we finish reading and we thought to ourselves, I have no idea what's going on here. What in the world is happening here? And yes, some sections in the Bible are admittedly tougher, more challenging than others. Maybe this is why many pastors are often required to, you know, study in seminary or graduate school before they can be ordained or hired to serve at a church. When I talk about the Bible's fundamental clarity, what I have in mind are its most essential teachings that we need to know about how we can live in a right relationship with God. A theological document called the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. It says, Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the trained but also the untrained may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of ordinary means. In other words, if the Bible truly is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in righteousness, then by necessity, it has a fundamental clarity that makes its basic truths about salvation understandable, not just for a scholar or a pastor, but also for your quote-unquote average Christian of all ages, as long as we make proper use of ordinary means like regularly hearing the preaching of the word and applying some basic rules of interpretation. Well, we've talked about the origin of Scripture, also its usefulness. Let's move on to our third and last point for today, the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture. Paul summarizes the main purpose of Scripture in the final verse of our passage this morning. Does all Scriptures God breathe and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work? They didn't know it when the Olympic torch was first lit in 1980, but that U.S. hockey team actually had all the talent and the skills they needed to compete with the Soviet team. They were thoroughly equipped. And the same was true for Timothy. On a spiritual level, as overwhelmed as he might have felt, Timothy actually had all the tools he needed to carry out his duties as a pastor and to live in a way that pleases God. He had the memories of all that he had observed and learned from his personal friendship with his mentor, the Apostle Paul. Timothy had the experience of learning the scriptures from his mother and grandmother, even from infancy. But most important of all, Timothy had the scriptures themselves 
that could make him thoroughly equipped for every good work. My friends, the scriptures still serve the same purpose today. The believer who cultivates the habit of reading and studying the word regularly can expect to become thoroughly equipped for every good work. Over time, you'll have everything you need to know God and to live in a way that pleases Him as you grow in His knowledge and in His grace. As counterintuitive as it may be for some of us to believe, we don't always need to learn the newest paradigms or strategies for ministry. We don't always need to familiarize ourselves with the newest fad that's taking the American evangelical landscape by storm. What we do need is to continue in what we've learned and have become convinced of, as we read in verse 14. And what we need more than anything else is a renewed and realigned commitment to the scriptures in light of what's taught in verses 16 and 17. Now, there's so much more I wish I could say if we had the time. I'd love to talk about how we need the Spirit's help to understand God's Word when we read and study it. And I also wish I could cover just some basic rules of interpretation, principles like reading any obscure passages in light of what's clear or plain or reading what's only implicit in certain texts in light of what's explicit in other texts. Those principles and others can help us avoid some of the more common interpretive pitfalls, but if I could leave us with just one final thought as we wrap up this morning, I think perhaps the greatest hurdle for many Christians when it comes to the Bible isn't the intellectual or philosophical dilemmas we experience when we encounter some of the more difficult passages. I think our greatest hurdle is often the moral dilemma within us. The moral dilemma. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible teaches that humanity's greatest problem, our greatest problem, is our innate tendency to rebel against our Creator because of our sin. In that sense, we're not all that different than Eve when she heard Satan question God's word in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, our immediate answer often ranges anywhere from, well, I'm not sure, to, ah, no, he didn't say that. Or, if he did, well, he didn't really mean it. But, If the Bible truly finds its origin from God, and if it is truly useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness, then the Bible doesn't just have a fundamental unity or fundamental clarity to it. The Bible also has a fundamental authority over us. R.C. Sproul, who I quoted earlier, doesn't pull any punches here. He says, the Bible's authority is so strong, so supreme, that it imposes on us a moral obligation to believe it. If we do not believe it, we have sinned. It is not so much an intellectual issue as a moral issue. 
If the Lord God Almighty opens his mouth, there is no room for debate and no excuse for unbelief. It is the word of God, and everyone is duty-bound to submit to its authority. But deep down, I don't want to do that. We don't want to do that, do we? At least on our own, we don't. But my friends, this is also precisely why we need the Scriptures more often than we realize. Paul reminds us in verse 15 that the Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What that means for us, my brothers and sisters, is that the most precious gift that we can find in the Scriptures is Christ himself. When we read the Old Testament, when we read the Gospels, when we read the book of Acts, when we read the New Testament letters, when we read the book of Revelation, we see again and again our Savior who perfectly obeyed the Word of God. When we read the Scriptures, we also see our Savior who was willing to die in our place as the final sacrifice for our sin, even though it was us who disobeyed God's word again and again. And when we read the scriptures, we see our Savior who will keep his promise to return someday and make everything new again. We see in the scriptures a Savior who promises that he will claim us as his own. He will embrace his church as his bride made pure and beautifully dressed for her husband. When we see our Savior again and again and again in the Scriptures, we'll discover a new desire, not from ourselves, but a new desire to submit ourselves to Him. We'll experience God's Spirit working within us and leading us to a greater willingness to trust His Word and obey it by His grace. So, yes, my brothers and sisters, let's stay true to this core value of the Word of God so that we can learn its teaching and receive its rebuke and correction and be trained in righteousness. Yes, let's uphold this core value of the words that we can, over the weeks and months and years, be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But most of all, Most of all, let's not neglect the Word of God because it's in these scriptures that we find our Savior and we'll be reminded again and again of how much He loved us and how He still loves us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for this opportunity to look into Your Word, to be reminded about the word its divine origin its incredible usefulness and its great purpose for us your people we're thankful that lord you were pleased to make yourself known to reveal yourself not only through the light of creation and nature but through the light of your written word we pray that as individuals and as a church, you would, by your grace, help us to 
uphold this core value, make use of all of its benefits to grow in our knowledge, to be open to its correction and rebuke, to be trained in righteousness so that as students, as men and women, as families, as a church, we be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We give you the praise, the worship that you alone deserve. Jesus, we thank you that you are the divine word that we find in these pages, the greatest gift of all, this beautiful portrait of who you are, how you came, how you lived, how you died, how you rose again, how you rule at the Father's right hand and how you will return someday and claim your bride as your own. It's in you that we have our ultimate hope. We pray these things in your name. Amen.